Hello. Hello there. My computer's saying my computer is very slow, but you can hear me okay, can't you? I can hear you, and at the usual speed. <sighs> at the usual speed? Yes. Was I at the wrong speed before? No. It's possible that what my computer's picking up on, or what Skype's picking up on, is that I'm running very slow. Oh. It's possible the brain may be not functioning quite as well as it could be. How are you? You good? Um, I am fully functioning and uh, operational. I have passed all checks. Uh, I'm due a service in the next 3,000 miles. I'm due a cervix in the next uh, few days. I'm talking about sex. I figured. I like to schedule it as far in advance. That way nobody's nobody's left with uh, poorly reached expectations. Is cervix actually just the nickname you've given your right hand? <laughs> I mean, you see, the thing I don't really know is what, what angle you wanted, what angle you were thinking about the subject. Uh, it is an interesting one. I'll give you um, a, a couple of pointers. So if I go back to the email I sent to you at the beginning of the month, that's probably one good place to start in terms of how we are framing this particular episode. So I said, um, once we traded goods for effort, effort for goods, and probably good for goods too, then some bright spark had the idea to invent trinkets of metal and paper to help us pay our way instead. That has a potential to create power, and its absence leaves us helpless. Civilization has made it incredibly difficult to live without it, and for those of us who have just about enough, there are a million ways people want to take it away. I know you've something to say about the imaginary metric and basically how abstract the whole concept is. I think mm-hmm. the topic might also uh, touch on value, honest and dishonest ways to earn money, and uh, probably a little bit about markets as well. There might be scope for social standing insofar as how money can affect families over generations and afford children better opportunities, but that's more about the power of money than necessarily assigning class. I'm not interested in talking about social classes. No, me neither. God. It's really talking about what it actually means and why we have it. Um, and then uh, probably from there, the pros and cons of this system of money. And in that, I think we can talk about the ridiculousness of paper money and coins and stuff being worthless and the numbers in your bank statement being worthless because it's all structured on a promise, on several levels of promises, <laughs> frankly. And if, if any of those promises aren't fulfilled, then those numbers mean less than they meant or they mean zero so i think that's that's where to look at it from i also did a real simple yes no list of areas to touch um Mm -hmm. under yes uh, the birth of money the types of money value Mm -hmm. opportunity power inequality poverty uh, banks and savings because they have to kind of be there i don't understand bitcoin and I don't know. And I, don't, <laughs> I don't know nearly enough about. Bitcoin. I don't know whether we even touch digital digital currency. I get the feeling we probably shouldn't. Mm. Um, under the no column, class privilege, monetary policy, economics, government, and social security. I think there's a separate discussion to be had about monetary policy and the way that governments try and influence the flow of money. I don't think that falls into this at all. I don't really know enough. Yeah, I don't know very much about that anyway. So I don't really know very much about any of it. But Yeah. There's an episode that I would like to have, which touches on a bit of this, which is called Who Pays? And that's more about whether we pay a certain amount of the money that we earn for the better of everyone or whether we all just want to keep it for ourselves. So that's a, that's a separate thing. Mm-hmm. And then some topics which kind of bridge the yes and the no are things like labour, 
actually working for money in the labour markets and how the oversupply of potential workers versus the undersupply of employment basically devalues work. Mm-hmm. And therefore, the, you know, the effort that you put in for the money you get is less fair, we could say. Yeah. Uh, property obviously comes into that and, and markets to a degree things like capital, you know, where, again, a bit like property, you know, that there are things that have a monetary value, but they're not actually money. So there are all the thoughts. <laughs> That's loads. I feel like you should have delivered all of that in a, a sort of performancey way, and then that could actually be in the episode. Because <laughs> it, was, it was great. <laughs> Unanswered. The problem I'm having at the moment with money is I understand it as a completely abstract thing that doesn't really make any sense. It's the, of all of the lies we agree upon, it's the most powerful and the most all-encompassing. And I I was thinking about this earlier on when I was thinking about the episode, that um, when people employ rhetoric and suggest that capitalism or money are like a religion they're being a bit trite really but there is a truth in it because it is literally a thing that we all believe in and it kind of starts to fall apart when people don't believe in it and the problem i'm finding at the moment is i understand all that but uh whenever you make a really big purchase or i guess whenever you make a really small purchase that you can't really afford suddenly how abstract money is and how nonsensical it is doesn't really matter because you still have to deal with it as if it's a real thing whether you believe in it or not it's quite surreal and it adds this extra layer of vertigo to the whole process of having to deal with it all the time Mm. um in terms of the roots of money i think we probably both have the same not quite historical or archaeological but vague sense of how it happened how money happened and how it was a useful thing to have when it happened which i'm guessing is when we first started developing uh, societies when we were probably still a bit nomadic um but we were like making things or initially we would have just lived in our little group like wolves and some people would gather food and some people would kill food um we'd all share roughly the same shelters in a in a relatively small place probably stuff that we could move on from quite quickly like caves and stuff like that Mm -hmm. and meat and food would come into the tribe or whatever we'd have called it then and we'd split it probably not quite evenly the strongest or there would have still been a hierarchy but we would have just split it between us and maybe the whole, you know, maybe the whole little tribe would, when we had children, we'd either pick, we'd pick ones that look plump and we'd eat those in cold winters. Uh, but otherwise we'd sort of raise them and it'd all be, everyone would all be in together. It'd be like a great big polygamous, wonderful thing that didn't require money because we split everything that came in approximately evenly based on size or whatever. But then when we started settling down and started growing crops and, and things like that, we started developing barter systems. But the barter systems would have been based on actual things, wouldn't they? Like yeah. tangible, this guy's got crops, this guy's got meat, this guy makes shoes or blades or whatever. I'm entirely relying on guys. You know, I'm sure women, let's just say men and women are guys. They're all guys, okay? And you'd actually be trading stuff. And 
in a cold winter, the person who was making all of the furs would be able to get more for their furs just because they were, you know, they were more valuable at that particular point. But in other times, meat would be more important and stuff like that. And it just kind of all work itself out. It's an economy, but it's not what we'd think of as an economy because everything would be based on actual things, on actual need, and who had what. You know, it wouldn't be about how much they're willing to let their thing go for because they need they need they need wheat just as much as the other person needs their meat or whatever. Sure, yeah. Um, but as we started developing, as we started having, I guess, slightly less definitive jobs. Or roles in a in a society like I guess I'm I think I'm thinking maybe say if you were a builder you're going to build someone a hut once I'm just pulling this example right out of my house uh, right not right out of my house <laughs> hey. right out of my ass um, if you're a builder you've got skill you're going to build someone something and it is going to be it's vital for them and it's going to last them hopefully a really long time but they're not going to need to keep coming back to you so it's not like they can give you all the meat and wheat that that house is going to be worth to them right then. And you're going to be able to keep all of that. It's going to go off. It's not going to, it's the, the goods that you can get for the thing you're going to build for them. They're not going to keep you going. You know what I mean? And you might build one person a house once every like a hut or whatever, once every 10 years or five years or whatever in between times, not everyone's going to need a hut. This is a stupid example, because I guess in between times you'd just go and hunt and stuff, wouldn't you? Building was a bad example, but I think it's in the more abstract services um, that, that people can provide where we started inventing money. Or in fact, maybe you hit on it earlier on. Maybe what, what started happening was jewellery and things like that. People started making little things that weren't necessarily a need. They weren't food or shelter, but they were nice someone would be making headdresses or dream catchers or little trinkets stuff like that and those things end up having a much more abstract value than the food and stuff like that because some people are going to think well i don't want a decoration for my house and other people are going to think yes i really do and then you have to start thinking of trade in different ways and then of course you've got the people as i as i mentioned before you've got the people who like singers and like bards and entertainers and people like that, they start coming along. I think interestingly, in terms of artists, their trade was probably less to do with uh, money than, than a lot of what society was back then. Because one, one would imagine in the same way that you, that you were working to in the builder analogy, it's like there's a, there's a lifespan of the actual effort. The product of a builder lasts a long time, but the product of an artist might not last very long. If it's a performer, then the effect of their work lasts barely as long as the performance itself. Whereas an artist, for example, if uh, a, a painter, their work obviously has the ability to, to live on beyond them. One would imagine that they are more likely plying their trade in return of favour of food, shelter, perhaps a little bit of extra money to help them on their journey or whatever, then I guess someone who, who would be intrinsically linked to a community, like uh, someone who is making clothes or uh, a baker or something like that. See, before we started talking about it, before I started trying to make it concrete, I thought I had a pretty good idea of how money probably started. But now I'm having trouble getting there. <laughs> I think what will have happened is... Say you're a, a bard 
Yep. And you, you perform in a pub. Everyone's not going to have their meat or wheat or whatever with them there. So maybe the maybe the pub will give you a meal and a drink for performing and maybe you'll get a roof over your head that way. But you won't be able to get paid to the extent that of people's appreciation because not everyone can not everyone's going to be able to give you the thing that they can uniquely give you in that particular period i don't know maybe it's about surplus maybe it's about like the builder when you've provided a bigger service than the people can give you in enough meat so you have to come up with a different way of i don't know what do you think steve <laughs> hi my name's steve i'm also hi. on the unanswered podcast um you may have heard me from other unanswered podcasts don't know where that came from <laughs> yeah i mean we look <laughs> i'll just give you a minute to collect yourself there i'm fine <laughs> were, were you taking a, a swig of water yeah i was it went down the wrong pipe so i think the beginning bit we've got pretty solidly there was a point in history where as small packs of people some people had specialties other people had other specialties but we didn't even think about exchanging the different values because everyone effectively just supported everybody else by rote i guess as civilization started to develop i would imagine as trade started to come in that's where the barter system probably starts developing because again if if, if you're a, if you're just a, a close-knit tribe you don't have to barter amongst each other because you all know each other so if someone owed someone else they'd know they were good for it yeah um, and it's only once you start going between tribes where you probably would have to haggle, I guess, because you don't really know each other. So you've kind of got to figure it out as you go along. What sounds good to you? What sounds good to them? I guess the, the bridge between all of that and what we would look at as money now is if there was a, a particular thing, a particular physical item that had a value. Sure. I wouldn't know what that is. <laughs> because it wasn't coins yet you know so whether it was um i don't know like not stones or something but something that, like shells or things that were noticeably different from just rocks or whatever but were obvious enough that you could trade in them if you were a particularly productive tribe with wheat for example then perhaps you would use that to to do all of your trade with other people and that sure and that is, um, that's not necessarily universally recognised as money, but to them, they would use that as money. Yeah. And then at some point, we got from that to inventing specific items that represented a value. I, I don't want to rely on it too much. I've got half an eye on the Wikipedia page, and it, and, and it talks about commodity money and representative money. And I think that's where it fits in, doesn't it? Is, is that once we get past exchanging effort or exchanging goods, um, we get into having something that represents a value and relying on that instead. And that's kind of the beginning of a belief that you were talking about earlier, having to have faith that this thing does have a value. Like today, a coin or a piece of plasticky paper or cotton paper would actually be worth very little in and of itself if you were to burn it down to its constituent parts. But someone is promising that it is worth something. Whereas I would imagine there was a period of time, perhaps in representative money, where it would actually have more of a real value. Coins are generally made out of semi-precious or semi-precious metals, aren't they? Or certainly they would have been originally. 
I, th- I think there's a subtle difference between coins and notes. Oh, yeah, of course. And I think that might be when things started getting really wild and abstract. Because I guess if you've got... Maybe coins came out of something like uh, people trading in arrowheads or something small like that. And then uh, eventually coins came out of that because something like silver or... Is tin... Tin's not something you mine, is it? Or is it? Is it one of, is it one of the one of the proper metals that you get out the ground? I don't know. But like coins would have been made out of something that seemed to that had a value like you started making gold coins, but gold blocks different tribes or different groups of people or different societies all all of them is that what the gold standard is? I don't know. I'm not sure if that's what the gold standard is at all. But it's like all of the different societies agreed on gems and they agreed on uh, precious metals. Yeah. And so although the value, uh, the, the the amount of sheep a, a gold bar uh, would be worth might change from region to region, there was kind of an agreement that that, that, was, that they were worth something. And within towns, you know, uh, a bunch of gold coins would probably be worth the same roughly everywhere because, because they were considered a precious metal anyway. They could be melted down and, and kings would want them off you or i don't know really i don't know exactly how it will have developed we're struggling getting to that but i think that's probably where where that that side of things started notes are weird because i don't know if our notes still have it on them or if this is apocryphal and it's actually american notes that have it on them and i'm just really confused but they started out as a check kind of didn't they they were huge originally notes were quite large things like bills are you not getting confused with charity events no not the oversized uh, charity checks okay so you are they, they actually used to be really big because they? they say on them don't they that the, this is a promise to pay the bearer a certain amount of money yeah it's like like you've said a few times it's a promise i think you might have been you might have been referring to this or you might have been referring to the general crazy promise that money is <laughs> um, the money is now when you look at your bank account on a computer and it isn't actual money yeah i think they they initially started out as a promise to pay you a certain amount of gold coins or or whatever maybe we've always thought completely differently about notes maybe notes are when we uh, is uh, when the actual tangible pragmatic value of the materials that coins were made of that money was made of became uh, divorced from what we were using as money i guess we didn't really need to rest on precious metals and gems for example to represent a value of money until some people had a lot of it and, and i guess you know those that treasure those riches if you like would be something that people both honest and dishonest would uh, uh, aspire to have even though gems and uh, you know gold and silver for example were an abstract of sorts they carried a very important value whereas once you get beyond being able to carry that in your pockets or um, reliably and safely store it away, you then mm-hmm. have to come up with something else, don't you, to, to represent that value. And I guess that's where the notes and bills come into being. So they can capture a value which, if you tried to represent it physically, would be too much. For what we have now, which seems like utterly bonkers, that we're basically all running around promising everybody that we owe them something... I was just going to say, actually, that is is our entire economy and the whole world's economy just a, 
a system of IOUs that got completely out of control. <laughs> that kind of got away from us a little bit. I think so. I think it might be because I mean the the, the 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 other thing about coins, the other thing about about that initial thing is the value of them. It also comes from a, a sense of scarcity, isn't it? So it's difficult to extract precious metals from the ground or jewels exactly. from the ground, and we yep. know there's only a certain amount of them. But paper. If you've got a limitless supply of trees, which, as I understand it, we have, you can just make as much, as many checks as you want, as many IOUs as you want. There's no scarcity to banknotes at all. It's literally you can have as many of them as you want to, to scribble out. That's how they're made, isn't it? They're scribbled out. Yeah, the, um, the chair of the Bank of England draws each and every one. <laughs> it's a tireless job. That's why it gets paid so much. Yeah, Which well, is really should. annoying, isn't it? I mean, when you spend all of that time drawing and colouring in these notes and then they pay you with the things that you just made. The same things that you just made. So you see, he would be the one who just basically be able to go around and just promise people stuff. He might actually be the one who invented banking, though. Because I'm thinking, he gets paid pretty well, but you know who gets paid better than the guy who writes, who draws all of the notes? His boss. His boss gets paid better. And all that guy does is sit in an office that's probably bigger and tell him how many he needs to get done in a day. And that dude, he's raking it in. But I reckon the guy who makes the notes, he probably thought, if I'm going to do 10,000 of these a day, because that's probably how many he does, if you're going to give me £5,000 to make 10,000 of these a day, well, I could either slack off for half the day and just say I've stored the ones that you said I can have over here in this bank thing, um, or I could store them away and I could stockpile those 5,000 that I made at the beginning that you said I could have. I could claim to have taken them. I don't know. I'm not really sure what I'm getting at here. I think because I don't really understand how banks work. I don't think banks themselves really understand how they work. That's part of the problem. So he's making them and then we're giving some of them back to him. But if he's smart, he's going to think, well... If nobody's ever going to come around and check how many I've actually got, I could just save myself some time and not make the ones that they're giving me and say I've got them anyway. It's it's really weird, Steve. Do you understand money? Okay, so the guy the guy is being paid 5,000 notes to create 10,000 notes. So he only has to, on any given day, create 5,000 notes. The other 5,000 are his. Therefore... It would be down to him, really, when he creates those notes. He could effectively only ever create those notes when he needs to buy something. Yeah, or he could sneak in and make them at the weekend. But yeah, your way works as well. That gives him incredible power because he could create those notes whenever he likes. He doesn't have to store them. He could just make them. But you're saying that guy has a boss, so he couldn't verify it. Well, except his boss probably doesn't have a clue what's going on. Well, no, not if you've not if you've paid someone to create ten thousand notes and they're only making five. <laughs> yeah, fire that guy. <laughs> we can we can take it as read that his boss doesn't have a clue, really. Otherwise, he'd be the one making the notes. Oh shit! Unless he used to be the guy making the notes and he got promoted, I might not even really understand how workplaces work. <laughs> what if the guy who creates the this is brilliant? What if a guy <laughs> who creates the notes can't sign off the notes and it needs his boss? to actually sign the note to make them valid. Right. So you're the guy who creates the notes, and you're creating 5,000 notes a day, and you've got 5,000 theoretical notes, which you have in the back of your mind, which you can invent at any particular point that you need them. They are worthless until his boss signs them. 
Yeah, that makes sense. So that would that would require his boss to have oversight on how much the note creator has been paid up until a particular point. Because the guy would take his notes off to his boss to get signed, and his boss should know if that is too many or just enough. So his boss needs to be um, smart with figures, needs to have an um, artistic eye to make sure that the notes are to a particular standard. Uh, and he needs to have an unforgeable signature. I might have spotted another problem. Well, I mean, it might not be a problem. It might, again, we might be nailing down how the economy is, how it is. Um, so their office, with these two employers and employees in it... Yes. Let's not worry about whether or not they've got a boss. This office turns out 10,000 notes a day. The guy drawing the notes Mm -hmm. gets 5,000 notes a day, but his boss gets paid more than him. So let's say his boss gets paid 6,000 notes a day. That means this office is making 10,000 notes a day, but the staff making the notes cost 11,000 a day. So actually, for that to work, they both have to be taking their salary in this imaginary potential eventual money because the office can't physically pay them enough. Well, we've actually invented a horrendously unprofitable business. <laughs> well, I'm glad someone finally did. <laughs> <laughs> we are assuming that his boss can just create his own money whenever he likes. Maybe he makes his money by... Maybe the first guy is only allowed to do £1 notes... I know they don't exist anymore, but this was a long time ago. Um, maybe the one guy is only allowed to do one-pound notes, but his his boss did all of the five-pound notes before. Or maybe it works some... Because, strictly speaking, a five-pound note takes as long to do as a one-pound note, doesn't it? We probably need to move on, because I'm really confused now. What were we talking about again? So, we've had a nice ham-fisted journey through the history, <laughs> history. of money. <laughs> I think we can pretty much put the past behind us at this point and look at, in a contemporary frame of reference and frame of mind, in this kind of habit that I've always had, some of this always works with childhood, uh, it's a pocket money. Oh, God, yeah, pocket money. Uh, how much did you get, as a like, weekly, roughly, for most of oh, your time? Bloody hell, you don't expect me to remember any of that. I genuinely do not have any memory of how much pocket money I would have had as a kid. Genuinely cannot remember. So it started out as 50p, and I didn't start getting pocket money until I was about 12, among the people I knew at the time. That was quite weird. Everyone else had had it for a while. So I started out getting 50p. And then I think when they introduced the pound coin, because I'm that old, um, then I started getting a pound coin a week. Even then, that was the sort of amount of money that slipped through your fingers very quickly as a kid. So I could probably get sweets, but even most of the comics that I'd buy were probably a little bit more than that by that point. Mm. Even even back then, the main thing I'd have spent my pocket money on, I wouldn't have been saving it to um, make sure I had a decent down payment on a house when I eventually needed one, which uh, which maybe I should have. I don't know. But a pound a week is actually the main thing I'd have been spending money on back then was on Star Wars figures. And even back then, that was inadequate. You had to save up for several weeks before you could get a Star Wars figure. And I had to save up to buy comics as well, because we just discovered an American... Com- uh, we just discovered a shop that sold American comics, and they were a little bit more expensive than 2000 AD and stuff like that. So, But I had a very weird relationship with money, where 
the first time I ever saved up, um, which didn't come naturally to me because I was a kid, the first time I ever saved up, I can't remember if it was for comics, I think it was for about £10, so it was probably for some Star Wars figures or something like that. Um, I saved it up over the course of quite a few weeks, and... I came home from school ready to, or I went to my piggy bank or whatever, ready to go and ready to check and see how much money I had so that I could go and buy these things. And my money was gone. All of it was gone. And um, thinking about it, it must have been about fiver, um, but it seemed like loads and loads and loads. <laughs> um, it occurs to me now that's not very worldly for someone who was already probably a teenager or like at least 13 so I went to my parents and I said, I think someone's stolen my pocket money. It's all gone. And my mum said, oh, yeah, I had that for, um, I I, uh, I wanted to get some cigarettes and I uh, didn't have any money. So I took that. Oh. And I said, oh, but that was, but that was my money. And she said, no, I, we gave you it. And I said, but, but it was my money. You gave me it. And at that point I, I, I got into a bit of trouble for sassing my mum as well by my dad they didn't use the word sass because we're not Americans. But um, I got into a bit of trouble then. And, and, uh, and they both basically told me, no, it wasn't my money because they had given me it. And it's probably impacted on uh, how quickly I spend money once I have it now. Actually, Jesus, that's probably exactly why I spend money so quickly when I have it. I've literally just realised that's why I can't keep hold of any. It's because I'm scared they'll take it, like the, the employers or whoever will take it back. That is really, really odd. And the kind of rule rewriting that only parents can do. Mm, and continue to do even when you're in your 40s. <laughs> Whether it is money that you would have earned for doing chores or money that was just given to you because it was given to you, there shouldn't be a distinction. Once it's yours, it becomes yours. So it's very strange that they felt it was okay to revoke it. I'm sure, you know, it's possible that I'm remembering it differently from how it panned out, but but it's a pretty strong memory among ones among lots of stuff i don't remember it doesn't i mean it doesn't matter too much because within the year i think i only had pocket money for two or three years uh, because at, at one point uh, soon after i think when i was 14 my parents got a fish and chip shop and so i no longer got pocket money i got to work in the fish and chip shop for about half what the uh, local kids that they employed to do the same job got because i was family <laughs> So pocket money disappeared, but I started getting wages. I became a paper boy. Mm-hmm. Not a paper boy, that's ridiculous, a potato boy. I cleaned the potatoes. I uh, I took them down to the shed and I put them in a big um, uh, machine that, that rummaged them around, that kind of had sandpaper around the outside, took all the stuff off. Very wet job, very cold, very gross. Um, but pretty much everyone else they employed for that were basically people who couldn't get any other job because... They were reprobates or something. I don't know. So I got to, I got to meet some interesting characters doing that job, but I got paid about half as much as they did for the same amount of work. So um, your family screwed you. <laughs> a lot of stuff starting to become a bit clear, <laughs> actually. So my relationship with pocket money and my relationship with uh, just wages early on. You could almost see it as positive because I do sort of have an easy come, easy go, well, it's all kind of meaningless attitude to it at one level. But another level, a much more practical level, it means I didn't really grow up about money until about four or five years ago. It took meeting someone who had grown up 
um, with a much clearer sense of how money's supposed to work to actually make me realise that it didn't matter if I thought money was abstract. The rest of the world doesn't think money's abstract, so it's kind of important I'm a bit smarter about it. <laughs> I don't know. But so, what was your relationship with pocket money? I'm struggling to have much memory about pocket money. As I said earlier, I couldn't remember how much I got. It certainly wouldn't have been very much. The first thing I can I have an actual memory of in terms of being given money was probably my lunch money. When I first started secondary school, instead of having packed lunches, I had um, £1.20 or £1.50, something like that, to take to school every day. That was my lunch money to get whatever from the canteen. And there was a period of time there where I would not have lunch. So I'd take that money, that would be saved. And there was a period of time where every Saturday I would take that lunch money and spend it in the cinema. That's awesome. I did not have that much sense or I wasn't self-actualized enough to do that sort of thing. But then I was quite a good boy. And I think if I'd had lunch money... I'd have probably been really, really careful about spending it on anything other than lunch, but I guess maybe you didn't tell them about it, presumably. But it it does change the it does change the way you think about money because you had that experience early where you got to adapt what you were using cash for, whereas I don't really think I had any. I, I don't. I think I was probably it, like twelve or thirteen before I even had money in my hand, and I guess I wasn't really allowed to go out to shops or anything like that because we lived in an inner city it wasn't like you could just go down the street Uh, until I was in my early teens or like even maybe even 12 11 or 12 I don't think I went anywhere except school unless there was a parent with me through pocket money through paper rounds through you know the first little kind of jobs we might have done that has opened our eye to what money allows us to do now obviously you know we're kids so we don't have to pay our own way but in terms of being able to translate a small amount of money into something that we'd like to have that's one of the first times really where we're in control up until that point if we want to have um i don't know a nice chocolate bar we ask a parent and they either say yes or no with pocket money we now have the opportunity to buy one um, we have the opportunity to um, buy one now and eat it now and then probably think, I want another one and go, oh, no, I can't have another one. Or be able to be smart and go, well, actually, I could probably buy two later and then it's down to me when I eat them. I don't have to eat them at the same time. Uh, with you saving up for the Star Wars toys, for example, you know, even though <laughs> the opportunity to buy them was taken away from you. <sighs> Sorry to take you there again, but you exercised a choice. It's like either I can buy a sherbet fountain now or at the end of the month I can get Luke Skywalker. Except I don't like sherbet fountains. Can it be something? Sherbet dib dabs. Sherbet dib dabs dabs, better. Yeah, fine. Palmer violets, whatever you like. (laughs) I just (laughs) literally ate my first palmer violets in about 10 years this week. Was it like chewing old ladies' talcum powder? It was a lot like eating flowers. Um, I. It's interesting because that company only really does two things, don't they? They do Parma violets and they do Parma ham, and they're kind of quite <laughs> quite different things. 
But um, I don't know who had the idea to make Parma Violets, and it's weird you can still get them. They're kind of tasty, but they don't taste like sweets. They do taste like you're eating chalk or something like that. It's really tasty chalk. That's a great slogan. Parma Violets, <laughs> they're really tasty chalk. <laughs> <laughs> From the makers of Parma Ham. <laughs> So, so yeah, so you, you start making choices. You start making choices. I apparently didn't realise I, I had them. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I, to be, comics were probably the first, the first point at which that, that was the first choice I made. And, you know, it's the choice I'd make today too, damn it. Okay, so um, focusing on comics then, the value of a comic to you now versus the value of a comic to you when you had to save up for it. Because... You are in a position now where you can budget for several comics in the space of a month or, or, or whatever, perhaps at the cost of other things. But, you, you know, you, you are in a position now where something that probably was something that you really aspired to getting at a particular age, you can now have more of at will. We're back on the scarcity and value thing, aren't we? Yeah. Uh, that we were talking about before, because um, it's... It's not even it's not even that much about the money when it comes to comics. A lot of it's about the the fact that as a kid, um, now if I want to get them, not including the internet and being able to buy books and everything, there's a shop in town and I can just go there. Whereas as a kid, a comic shop was still a very exotic thing, and so the money plays into it, but also that. And I think it's it's kind of weird in terms of the experience. I value comics a lot less. I value comics as a medium immeasurably, okay. Um, but in terms of the, in terms of how long it takes me to read each one, how long I'll sit with each one without moving before moving on to the next one, how much I'd reread stuff. Uh, when I could only afford a few, or I could only get to the shop once every few months, and everything was so scarce, and you didn't really know what you were getting. Literally anything you're. Not, not only do you pour over it, not only do you end up with a relationship with that item, and you could say this about an album or, or anything, really. Yeah. Um, it's a much more unconditional experience. And actually, this probably translates to much higher ticket items as well. If I could only get hold of two comics and I could only afford the two at that particular time, it wouldn't necessarily bother me if those comics weren't very good. I didn't even have a metric for that. Because it was just great to get hold of them. Yeah. You know, they were so scarce that it was just great. And I would pour over them and it wouldn't, I, I wouldn't even notice if they were nonsense. This was a very different time when there wasn't Tumblr to go on to and complain bitterly about every detail. And I maybe wasn't paying as much, you know, I wasn't, my critical faculties maybe weren't as supercharged as someone the same age as would be now. But yeah, I think they were. They were super valuable to me, but quality wasn't as important as as just the item. And that's weird when you think about it, isn't it? Because in principle, the item was worth so much more, so it should have mattered so much more. It should have mattered more to me whether it was any good or not. If it was shit, well, that's devastating. 100% of my comics that, that week is shit. <laughs> and actually, I just thought of, a, of a, an analogy that really makes me check my privilege because you'd probably say that about like a mcdonald's but you know if you could only afford one burger a month you'd think you'd be really picky about it but actually no you'd just be fucking grateful for it that's that's <laughs> kind of how it works but now yeah i can afford more of them i've got that whole three dollars 99 thing where i start resenting the price of them if each individual one costs 
too much and i'm not sure if that's about the value of the it's partly about the value of the comic and it's partly about me worrying more about money me thinking more about what each pound is worth Mm. relatively depending on what i spend it on um that's really odd but i mean comics are too expensive so that's just (laughs) that's just a whole other thing but um yeah it's weird i think about video games and you know when i had a super nintendo a brand new super nintendo game would be 50 to 60 pounds and there wasn't really much of a pre-owned market back then. So if you wanted to get a new or newish game, you were paying a high price. Like a lot of things in the 90s, really, they had quite high values to them. The CDs was another thing as well. You know, when I was going through college and I was trying to amass my Pink Floyd collection, because that was like the only band I was listening to at the time, CDs were like their most expensive. If I wanted to buy a Pink Floyd album, and, and these weren't new. I was having to pay sixteen ninety nine per album. Yeah, that's pretty huge. Intense. And it was a big, at the time, it was still a big expense. I'd have to justify that against, you know, whatever I was making in my part-time job. But back to the video games thing, because I think that kind of crosses over with you in comics, is that, you know, I would have to save a long time to purchase a £60 Super Nintendo cartridge. And therefore, that game had better be something I really wanted and something I played the living hell out of. Versus now, being able to buy a pre-owned Xbox or PlayStation game or something like that for 15 or £20, and it's sitting on the shelf languishing for a long time, just waiting for my attention. The two very different things, aren't they? You know, the, the money that I spend is less consequential, and it's just something I've stockpiled. Whereas once upon a time... I would have worked very hard to look forward to this one thing that meant so much. And it's the same habit, it's the same thing, but without a certain amount of that baggage of having to work for it, this is what happens to small-ticket items and why the things that we save up for, the things that are more important to us and the things that we save up for now that seem to have a lot of importance and a lot of value are actually really expensive things now. You know, they might be computers, they might be cars, you know, whether they're secondhand or or, or, or brand new, or even homes, which is something we probably don't have enough time to discuss um, (laughs) as uh, as we're running up to time anyway. But um, it's not like the saving up for something that's valuable to us has died away, it's that the value's actually increased, like by a ridiculous amount as we get older. One thing that we haven't touched on, and we probably get, like you said, we probably don't have much time to go into, but um, I wonder what the earning of money, what impact the earning of money has on how much you value it. Because I sometimes don't understand my job, or I don't understand. When I was a kid, I didn't enjoy working for my parents, but it was relatively straightforward. It was tiring. It was all it was all very physical. And although the days seemed really long or the time seemed really long, your body was keeping active and time seems to move a lot faster mm. when you're doing that. I did value my money, but it was all it was almost all a positive thing. If I got twenty quid at the end of the week or whenever or however much it was and whenever I got it, that that was like this injection of something really nice into your life. It wasn't a lot of money, but it was this injection of positivity into your life. Now I get like relatively well rewarded for a job, but it's a job that 
a lot of the time there's lots of sitting around and having conversations that I don't really understand why we're having them. (laughs) And there are parts of my job I really, really like, but there are parts of the, the things about my job I really, really like don't seem to be the things that I and other people are paid for. The things that I and other people seem to be paid for are the things that I really don't enjoy and I don't understand and they give me anxiety, like meetings, like weird hierarchical power structures that don't seem to be meritocracies. And so I'm very twitchy about spending money. Money isn't a positive thing. Like getting my salary at the end of the month doesn't feel like a positive thing because sometimes it almost feels like a trap and this is really a privilege busting thing but it's very peculiar my relationship to how i'm earning the money it's so divorced from the actual work i'm doing as i said earlier on that you do something the first monday of the month you're not really entirely sure what it was you achieved on that monday and you're not going to see the reward for sitting in that office doing that work until the very end of the month until like 30 days later or whatever you start to have this really weird almost poisonous relationship with the money because it feels like you're not getting rewarded for the work while you're doing it and then once you get the money at the end of the month you'd no longer have a relationship with it you no longer have the positive relationship you don't get to feel good about the fact that you earned that money because it doesn't feel like you did earn the money even though you've been turning up at the same place for the whole (laughs) month in advance of it and so then the way you spend all of that money you have this weird um, relationship with it where it's tied to especially once you start talking about mortgages especially once you own a house but i mean that's kind of bullshit because everybody knows that once you decide to live in a place even if you're renting it that's a model you're you're not going to suddenly stop and go and live in a tent in a field somewhere and that probably costs you money anyway so we're all kind of locked in to this stuff and it's also kind of tied to how you feel about what you're going to be doing for the rest of your working life as well there's there's an element of that of feeling locked into this thing that you don't quite understand and you don't get to feel the same reward you don't feel like you earned the money but you still feel like it's a limited supply and so you don't necessarily value the value what you spend it on but you worry about spending it on stuff there's a lot of guilt involved you don't really you didn't really touch on this but i'm sure you feel it as well even though spending money on a 30 quid game or a 15 quid game doesn't seem like a lot in one way at the same time there's a little bit of guilt involved as well a lot of the time because you kind of feel like where you shouldn't be spending money on that you're not going to spend enough time with that game so maybe you shouldn't be spending it or maybe you don't feel that guilt i don't know I try not to let the guilt get to me, but there's definitely a little bit of it there. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of the stuff that we talked about really so far, um, it's been about disposable income. It's a modern invention, first of all. It's not something that everybody has a lot of, but we all try and have a bit of it. <laughs> because yeah. um, even if that disposable income is, is only enough to buy us uh, you know, a very small treat once in a blue moon... It's just about enough to make all of the rest of the obligatory stuff that we have to do with money worthwhile. If I'm spending a small amount of money on a secondhand computer game, trust me, at that moment in time, I'm ecstatic. (laughs) Here's this thing I've wanted. I found it at a good price. I now own it. How fantastic. You know, and the angst of not having it has now gone away because I have it. Uh, And later, I'll get preoccupied with the angst of not doing enough with it. 
but that has nothing to do with the money I spent and everything to do with time management, um, desire and all sorts of other things. But in, in, you know, obviously in that moment of isolation, when you're exchanging cash for something, it feels fantastic. Guilt doesn't come from that. There was a period of time where I was earning enough where I could make a regular donation to charity out of my monthly pay packet. Um, and that was a very good feeling. I wouldn't say it made any other disposable purchases um, more justified, but it felt it felt good to be able to have that as part of a monthly budget. I can't do that now, and I haven't been able to do that for a few years. But because of what I said earlier, it feels uncomfortable talking about any of this stuff. And mm. I don't know whether it's just because we're British, but it just kind of feels a little bit embarrassing to be able to talk about being able to afford anything. Well, because the, so many people are struggling so much. But I, the, I mean, I... And it's not, it, sorry, I was just, you know, obviously it's clear to most of the audience we're not showing off. This is not what this discussion yeah. is about. It's not what any of this is about. But it's a difficult thing to parse. Because I've never been very good with money. And I've, it's not like I've ever had lots. But I was always really bad with it when I did have it. The only times I've managed to do a lot with a little was when I literally had so little. There was a period of my life when I was about 16 when I was living in a uh, rented house with some people because my parents both moved to different towns and I had to stay where I was to carry on with the sixth form. Otherwise, I'd have had to have left school and got a job. And I was in the middle of my A-levels when all that happened, and I didn't want to do that. Even that's a sort of a privilege, because lots of people wouldn't have felt that they had a choice about leaving school and going and getting a job. But there was a level of stubbornness where I didn't want my parents leaving to have that much of an impact. And so I was going to school and also working at a supermarket and earning a chunk of money from the supermarket, getting a tiny little bit of help on rent from the council like a really tiny amount and so I was working through four evenings and a Saturday a week or two or three evenings sorry and a Saturday a week and I'd have five pounds for food uh, a week even though we're talking about a little while ago the five pounds still wasn't a lot of money (laughs) it was it was was quite a small amount of money Mm. um and so that's a period of my life quite early on when you'd have thought I'd have learned I could live on very little because I was living on very little and I wasn't starving. I probably wasn't healthy, but actually that hasn't been the case at all. I've still, when I got my student loans on my grants, they all went straight through my hands. And when I got my first job, the exact same thing happened. When I literally didn't have anything or had hardly anything and was really struggling, I didn't feel like the guilt or pity of people with more than me would really make the slightest bit of difference to my situation <laughs> at all. It was just something I had to get through. And um, I've always felt kind of very isolated from the economy in that way. I think what we've done today is spent an incredibly long time just, first of all, trying to get a grip on what money actually is. You know, I'd, I'd say that was an important discussion to have because we take it for granted, yeah, okay, privilege, you know, you have some, therefore you are in a position to perhaps take it for granted. I'm not talking about the ownership or the possession of money, but just the fact that money exists at all. That, you know, those of us who do have a bank account, and it's just numbers. You know, it is, it is like you said, that one thing in which if we didn't have faith in that, we have nothing. It's mad to think 
we are living in a world now in which if this one thing didn't work, we would spiral into chaos. Our entire way of life, our entire civilization is now built on a very abstract thing. Part of the reason my relationship with it is so confused is because because of how abstract our relationship with money in general is. And I've kind of always understood there's something demented about you're on the high street. All of these businesses, their function is to make money. But there's this weird thing that goes on because you've got people begging. Strictly speaking, they don't need money. What they need, well, unless you're talking about shelter, what they need is food or drink in some cases. But what they really need is food. They need sustenance and a place to sleep at the end of the day, which is really what all of us need. And at the same time, there are all of these shops whose job it is to make money who have kind of decided that somehow their world will collapse completely if at the end of the day when they've got all of this food left over, they just give it to the people who need food but can't afford to buy it. That doesn't make sense. They don't lose anything by doing that, but they don't do it anyway. It's peculiar because it's... Are they worried that if they start giving away mouldy food at the end of the day, um, that somehow they will devalue the pasty? Is that is that what they think is going to happen? And then at the other end, it is possible in our society, in fact, it's kind of asked of us and demanded of us, for us to take on debts. I'm determined to say this about buying a house, and it might be the only thing that makes it in, if anything does. We're kind of expected and almost required and asked and demanded, and we're told it's uh, our patriotic duty to do this, to take on, at the age of about 25, maybe 30, a debt that is so huge that it's going to last probably to the end of our working life. That's insane. And we're just all... The people who are in the property market, the people who've got mortgages, that's something that they're wandering around with in their heads all the time. They might not think about it a lot of the time. They might just think, oh, it's a, it's a better investment than rent. Your rent money just goes nowhere. Our relationship with money is screwy. That's weird, isn't it? It's funny how saying that the money that you spend on rent goes nowhere when the money that you spend on um, telephone line rental, the money that you spend on electricity, the money that you spend on water goes to exactly the same place. It goes nowhere. Exactly. Um, and <laughs> it's kind of insane. If you spend money on rent, you're just throwing it away. And more often than not, with the right kind of mortgage, you'll be spending less on the property uh, on a monthly or annually basis than you would have done on rent. You're more um, open to changes in interest rates and market forces and stuff like that. And again, that's something we don't have time for. But it's that concept of moving from something that is more short-term, like a lot of the expenditures we have, like the utility bills that we were talking about, or perhaps like small investments in, you know, clothes and food and things that, you know, will stick around for a short period of time, or maybe furniture even, slightly bigger expenses, they stick around with you for a little while. Um, but that's totally different from saying here is a 25, 30 year commitment. It's, that is really bizarre when you also factor in the whole concept of money being really weird anyway. Mm. It's like a double weird all it's the a way. Double, it's a, at least a double weird. And then you introduce the fact that it's all a game and you don't know whether the debt you have committed to is actually what a place is even worth. <laughs> it's kind of, you introduce gambling into it all. And it's just all nuts. And and there are just 
millions of people walking around with that in their head like it isn't a thing. I sometimes wonder what it is about us how sometimes when I'm at a train station and I'm stood on the platform and I'm waiting for a train to come in and I'm looking at all the people down the platform and I'm thinking about myself and I'm thinking it's taken us a really short amount of time uh, in terms of psychological evolution to uh, be just fine with hundreds of tons of metal moving at really high speeds about a foot away from us we just how it's weird that we can deal with that but all of this money stuff, all the mortgage thing, people are carrying that around and it's like they don't even realise. What is wrong with people? Everyone should be as stressed about this stuff as I am. That's what I think about money. We should finish every single podcast with one of us saying that. That's what I think about spoilers. <laughs> God. Was I one of those kids that gets like locked in a basement or something? I mean, I'm I'm starting to wonder if maybe my childhood was even as normal as I thought it was. Seems like you spent a lot of it locked in a shed with potatoes. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> Do you find it difficult walking into a fish and chip shop? I have more opinions about fish than maybe I should have. <laughs> <laughs> I have more opinions of of the quality of fish and chips than maybe I should have. I, I wouldn't say I'm a connoisseur, but I, I do kind of care about that stuff more than more than maybe is is entirely natural. Um, no, I mean, I don't get the fear, because I wasn't really allowed in the front of the shop, you see. Mm. So the front of a shop wouldn't bother me at all. If I had to go in the back of a shop, maybe that would. I don't know. And also, uh, it used to be the case that when you went into a fish and chip shop... Um, there'd always be an old married Greek Cypriot couple behind the counter arguing with each other in Greek, not expecting anyone to understand what they were saying. <laughs> um, and so that used to that used to set me off a little bit, but but that isn't really the case anymore. It's all um, they've all been taken over. Really, the best fish and chip shop in Southampton, I think, is Chinese run. It took us a really long time to find it as well. This isn't the fish and chip episode. That can be a, an episode down the line. It's fine. <laughs> Also, the dogs are always around, and they're wankers. <laughs> bark. <laughs> bark, bark. Visit unanswered podcast.wordpress.com.